Would you stand with me as we read? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, 1 through 21. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no place in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word of the Lord. There's been no shortage of ink spilt trying to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? It's a question that's germane to our existence. It's one that's been attempted to be answered throughout history. What are we? What does it mean to be human? I think beneath this question, we ask this question because we inherently know that something is deeply wrong. We inherently know that we have a capacity for more than we experience in life. To some degree, generally in some different ways, everyone experiences this. And so we know that deep down, if something is wrong, if we can just figure out who and what we are, we can solve our problems. And so throughout history, we have seen many answers offered to this question. And I think our lives are extremely influenced by a number of different answers. So you have a couple, if we just surveyed really quickly, if you thought of um, Sigmund Freud, the famous psychologist, was very influential in modern psychology. 
He basically boiled the Christian or the Christian life. Uh, he boiled just human life down to essentially uh, two powers: the power of wanting to avoid death, and then sex. He said that sex is the ultimate form of the desires that we have, and so to suppress our desires is to not be human. That we have desires and cravings, and so we give ourselves over to them. Is what makes us human. So you see that playing out all the time. Our culture would define you as a sexual being. Our culture defines us as sexual beings all the time. It is constantly in front of us, constantly trying to motivate us. It's the fact that people are destroying their bodies and making unbelievable decisions in the name of sexuality because our culture tells us, that's my identity. You can also see in Descartes, where even though he was trying to do good things, he makes the famous statement that we all know, I think, therefore I am. And out of that, it goes down you know, the corridors of history and takes on multiple forms. But basically, it's this idea that because I think, I know I am. I'm a conscious, rational, thinking being. So then, if I could just get the right thoughts in my head, then life will be okay and everybody will be fine. If I could just think the right way. And so our bookshelves at bookstores are littered with this idea. If you want to be rich, if you want this, you want to be more influential at work, you have to begin to think this way and to get other people to think this way. That's how your problems are going to be solved. And I think if we ask Paul the question, what does it mean to be human? I think he would actually point us to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Because for him, to be fully human is to be an imitator of God. It's to be an imitator of God and his likeness. And any attempt to define your life apart from being ultimately rooted and founded in God himself falls dramatically short of what you were created for, your capacity, and the, satisfa- the desire for satisfaction that you have. And so Paul sees something in the work of Christ as being profoundly restorative. That a lot of so much of Christ's work is this profound restoration of who we are, which is why Paul would say in five one that we imitate God. Why? Well, because we're His beloved children. That we're children learning to be like our Father. But what He's restoring is actually what was lost. So if you go back all the way to creation, you see Adam and Eve created as God's royal son and daughter. God gives them authority and power and dominion over all that He'd created. He walks and talks with them in the garden and raises them. You see God take Adam to all of the animals, and it says just to see what he would name them. It's a powerful picture of God walking and raising his children. But then the basis of all of that, you still have to go back to how Adam was actually created. And it says, Genesis 2, that Adam was formed and fashioned, using using language of an artist, sculpting a piece of art, a masterpiece. But he's still not quite human yet until God comes face to face with him and breathes life into his nostrils. And he comes alive. That is the basis of our humanity, is that we were meant to consume the life of God. Which means you have a massive, massive vacuum inside of you that only God can fill. That is a tremendous understanding of what it means to be human. That the ultimate, ultimately the only way I will ever be satisfied is to consume and breathe in and take the life of God. But when the fall happens, we lose that because we lose that face-to-faceness with God. 
And so instead of actually running to God, sin actually makes us run away from God and ultimately it kicks us out of his presence. We're kicked out of the garden and we're not let back in. And I think you could actually define the story of humanity, at least in one way, if we ever described it, you could at least say that we've been trying to find the face of our Heavenly Father ever since. We've tried to get back there. We know that there's a desire in us that, we, that, that needs to be satisfied, and we look everywhere for it. And Paul would say in Romans 1 that that's, uh, humanity is looking all over the place for it, but we place it on the wrong things, and so we sacrifice the Creator for the creation. And then when that happens, we actually utterly destroy ourselves. Misplaced worship is destructive. We find, it in, we find uh, God in every tree and every uh, idol in sex and in power. And when it's misplaced, it causes destruction and it dehumanizes and it destroys. The very thing that we're seeking to be fully human and find God, is act- and when we seek that in other things, it actually does the complete opposite and it destroys us. Sin is a powerful thing. I was watching, um, or I was listening to a sermon recently, and some had a great uh, story of Charlie Chaplin. He went on vacation in uh, Monaco with his family. And as he was there, evidently in Monaco, uh, they were having a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest in the village that they were staying at. So he decides to join, and he gets in the Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest. So he gets all of his clothes out, and he finds his most Charlie Chaplin-esque suit. And he puts on the makeup, he gets his rounded top hat, and he enters the contest. And he does like his best duck waddle and all of his mime stuff. And as it turns out, he places third. <laughs> I think the, that's a profound picture of sin. Is that it makes us settle for cheap imitations. And when we see the real thing, we don't even know it. That's the story of our humanity. We have this desire that won't go away. And we're trying to find how to fill it. And this is why Paul would say that Christ is so important. Because he doesn't say, hey, be imitators of God. What God? What's he look like? How do we know what he's like? Because if, if we don't have Jesus, then we will inevitably make God in our own image. God will want what I want, magically, all the time. He'll never want what you want if it threatens me. We make God in our image. And so that's why Christ is so important in verse 2. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That if we want to see the Father, we look to Jesus. So now in Christ, the opportunity to now once again consume the very life of God is possible. To be restored to the fullest humanity that you could possibly imagine is found nowhere else other than Christ. Because he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And if you think about his invitations, he's always inviting people to come in. He's saying, come and feed on me. Come and eat me. Come and drink my blood. Eat my flesh. If you're thirsty, I will satisfy and quench your thirst. Come and feed upon me. That Jesus ultimately is the way that we come back to feed on the very life of God. The doorway is open. The angels have been removed from God's presence. And now we can go through that doorway, but the reality is, is we don't often do that, do we? We go elsewhere. We still do. And I think that's why Paul immediately moves into verses 3 through 5 about sexual immorality. Of course, it, sometimes at the end of Paul's letters, it sounds like the, uh, they just turned on the music for an Oscar thank you, you know, acceptance speech. 
And he starts to get all these points in there because they're trying to get all these names and just trying to throw out names to get them in before they have to walk off. Paul's saying, you know, uh, be imitators of God. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't make bad jokes. Walk as children of light, not as children of darkness. And it seems like it's scattered. But I think he's making a very simple point. I think he's actually following a trail of thought out of verses 5, 1, and 2. So he says, don't be sexually immoral. So we say, okay, uh, if I want to be an imitator of God, I can't be sexually immoral. That's bad. Okay? Crude joking. He's probably talking about sexual jokes. He's saying, don't make crude jokes. Well, because it celebrates that which is, is filthy and demeaning to others and dehumanizing. It's a celebration of all the things that we shouldn't celebrate. And so, um, don't do that. Now, it's easy to take that and say, well, okay. Jesus let ourselves off the hook. We pass over sexual immorality or in, and crude joking. We think, you know, I don't really make any crude jokes. Or you say, I'm not in gross sexual sin. Check. I'm good. But the problem with that thinking is that it just turns Paul's teaching into moralism. Because it, you don't ha- by doing those things, doesn't automatically make you a Christian. I know a lot of non-Christian people that aren't in rampant sexual immorality or even make cruel jokes. They're actually very kind people, but does that actually make them followers of Jesus? So we have to find a greater ethic in what Paul is trying to tell us other than just saying, hey, don't do that. That's bad. He's reminding us that it's not just not doing something. It's actually becoming something. Which is why in verse 2 he says, to, again, that we are to imitate God and, as beloved children. Just as, and walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That is what we are becoming. We do not define Christianity by what we don't do. We define ourselves by becoming like Jesus. That's it. And so if we just take kind of these things and we just don't do them, we're missing out on the reality of what Paul is trying to help us understand. Maturity is Paul's goal for us that he said in Ephesians 3. And there's no greater maturity than to look and talk and become more like Jesus. Which I think means that we need to think a little bit deeper about why Paul would actually place this here. Why would he immediately go from 1 and 2 and then to 3 and 5? I think he's doing a couple of things. I think one thing that he is doing is he is reminding us that even as the church, don't get complacent. You can still fall into deep, patterns of sin and brokenness. Do not underestimate your capacity to be filled with... I mean, think of the Corinthian church. All that's happening. There is a warning here. But secondly, I think he's expressing what happens, what type of culture gets created, and inevitably what will happen when we stop seeking to be satisfied by the life of God. If we're called to imitate God and become like him and consume him as his children... What happens when we don't? I think his broader focus in this section isn't actually sexual immorality. I think it's coveting. That his main focus in 3 and 5 is that, he's, that he wants us to focus on the idea that we're, we're our capacity to covet. And he just uses sexual immorality as the strongest example of what it looks like to covet. So I think what he's saying is that when we stop, to, when we stop seeking to be filled with the life of God, we inevitably will consume one another by pursuing the things that we want. That when we covet something, we consume each other. We objectify each other. 
We objectify their, their bodies. We objectify their time. We objectify their resources, and we use it for our own purposes. We have a life that turns inward rather than a life that imitates God and is focused outward. The consumption of others and coveting go hand in hand. Now, I think that we don't generally think of coveting on those terms. So think of it like this. You have a child that grows up, and um, everything they see, it exists, so it just belongs to them, right? They just grab at everything. If it's in your hands, they want it. And then they take it. You start to take it away from them, and then over time as they get a little bit older, you start to take it away from them, they get frustrated. If, you, if they reach for something else and they can't get to it, they get frustrated about that. It's just the fact that I want it, I should have it. And we kind of think that that is coveting right there. I want that TV at Costco as soon as I go in. I covet it. And that's kind of our understanding of what it means to covet. But I think that Paul is actually wanting us to mature in our understanding of what a community of coveters do. Now imagine that child growing up. And uh, has this ever happened to you? Mommy, I'd like to go to my friend's house after church today. Well, we can't. We have some things that we need to get done. And so maybe you can wait until next week. That'd be a better time. Fine. And you over here. Daddy, can I go to my friend's house after church today? He's like, well, ask your mother. I already did. She said to ask you. Where did they learn that? That's an incredibly nuanced way, even that a child can figure out that they can use others to get what they want. Now, what happens when that child grows up and they mature in their desires? The things they crave become much more strong, much stronger than just going to a friend's house. How do you think we objectify and use and consume one another for our own purposes? Paul takes it very seriously. He takes the reality that we objectify others and use them as resources to get what we want. And so, of course, sexual immorality ultimately is perfectly, in that sense, yes, it's to objectify something and use you and flatten you into just something that's just a, a basic resource to satisfy and gratify myself. And I think, Paul, uh, there's a profound warning in Galatians 5.15 where he basically just flat out says it. If we don't think that this is a reality, Paul says in, verses, in uh, Galatians 5.15, he says, do not devour each other lest you consume one another. That is a profound warning. He's not using simple language. The fact that we would consume each other. He's talking about what happens if we're not mindful of how we need to be pursuing God and consuming him. Instead, we pursue and consume others. Gosh, that is a profound warning. And so I think if we stopped for a second, we'd have to ask the question, how do we do this? How do we actually allow coveting into our lives? How do we actually do it among us as a church? And so I think for the rest of our time, maybe just to consider some examples that are simple and yet can be so powerful. Let's talk, start, we'll start with sexuality since Paul does. You had, a, you had a particularly promiscuous history before you were married. And as a result of being married, you now have a tremendous amount of expectations of your spouse. And it has driven a wedge between you. You can't stop consuming images on the internet. And it is eating on your soul. 
And it is absolutely driving a wedge between you and your spouse. And it creates expectations. Or maybe something as simple as an argument. You will not let your spouse have a voice. If they disagree with you, or if that you feel as though you're wronged, you just become the Hulk. And you overwhelm them and consume them, and you steal the very voice from your spouse. Instead of listening to them, you overwhelm them and crush, and crush them. And the words, you know, honey, I want to know what you think, never come out of your mouth. So anytime you are challenged, you consume. You get really hungry. What about friends? I go to this person, and I want to be their friend, but really, deep down, it's just because this person, if I befriend them, they will allow me access to an inner circle or clique or social group that I want to be a part of. I have no intention of actually really getting to know that person and valuing them for who they are. I just value them for the fact that they offer me social status and position. They offer me the validation that I crave. I mean, ways that we will sit and allow someone to hear our story. How's your life? And we tell them things that are difficult and things that are hard, but when we have the opportunity to listen to them, we can't stay off our phones because Facebook or Instagram is just so important in that moment. And we consume them. When you, rec- something re- when you begin to require something of me, I need to be entertained. I think that we can gossip. We can take things that um, we can listen to somebody's story. We actually do listen to somebody's story and think we've done a good deed, but then when we go and talk to somebody else, we tell a little bit too much about that person's story to someone else because we love to be in the know. And we love for people to view us as being connected with other people and being on the inside. Think about our children. How do we consume our children? We, I really like the idea of being a, having well-behaved children because it makes me look like a great parent. And so whenever, that, whenever my children act up, I consume them by the fact that I just angrily discipline them. Instead of treating it as a heart that's meant to be drawn towards me in loving discipline, I consume them with power and overwhelming them with my anger so that they will behave and fall in line. Don't make me look bad or I'll consume you. We have a culture. Uh, we have a culture that has um, a great plan for your child's life, and it will absolutely consume them. The great promises that it makes that if we could just perform well enough or uh, get the all the grades and all of these different things that our culture tells us we have to have this to be real people and to actually have value as humans, we give them to that rather than slowing it down and re- telling them that it's it, don't st- you don't have to worry. The only thing you should ultimately care about is not performing on the world's standards, but your most important thing in your life is to perform Jesus. But at the same time, we like the fact that we have successful children and we don't interrupt that crazy chaotic cycle that our culture wants to throw them into. I think we do all of these things in some way. All of us do. That's the good news. We all do it. The good news is, well, and the bad news, I suppose. Nobody's off the hook. We all do something. We all covet something and we use others in certain ways. Some of us don't even like to admit we do anything wrong. 
but we love it when people think that about us. We don't ever confess weakness because we like to be holy, or we confess a ton of weakness so that people will think we're holy. We do all of these different things nuanced, and Paul would say we all do it, but the thing that makes us different is are you willing to be mindful of what you do and how you do it? Are you willing to actually have that level of nuance and sin in your life exposed? Because that's what he talks about in verses 8 through 14. He says, now we are children of light, therefore walk in the light. And he's saying, simple as as can be, that if we are called to imitate God, then we have to be about the business of exposing the darkness in our lives. He's calling us to a profound mindfulness of what we do, a searching. And I think, you know, to some degree, I think that we could say that uh, maybe I could speak for you today by saying the words, you know, I actually feel distant from God. I feel distant from God for a long time. And I think that sometimes our first inclination when we do that is just to grab the next book. We just grab the latest Dan Allender book or Keller book. We just get information. And that's fine. But we don't understand, like Paul's teaching here, where he's saying we ultimately move towards Christ when we become like him. But the thing at the same time is that if we aren't constantly mindful of the ways that we aren't like Christ and we feel distant from him, perhaps it's because we are constantly ignoring and not paying attention to the places in our lives that the Spirit wants to expose. The Spirit wants to shed light on these things. And so our faith just comes down to coming to church and the only sacrifice it will require ultimately of us is the 10 minutes maybe to read a book or to serve in this way. And we don't think deeper about ourselves to say that my, pa- my capacity to understand and know God is profound. And the fact that I have an invitation to be like him is profound. How do I do that? How do I remove the darkness that's in my own heart and ask the spirit to now change me into a type of lover that loves as Jesus loves? But I think, on the other hand, we actually look at that and we say, if we were honest, I don't want to. I don't want to love like that. But it's too costly. Sacrificially loving others like that is too hard. I think we look for ways to follow our Savior by just kind of wanting to trim away the fat of verse 2 that we're not really called to embody him by sacrificing and loving others in the same way that he sacrificed and loved us. But it has to be a mindful diligence. And the truth is, is that we're called to please God. He says it in two different spots. In verses 10 and 17, he says that to discern the will of God and to try and figure out what it is that pleases him, which means it's okay if you don't always know the answers because we have to figure it out. It's kind of hard. Of course, we have our big sins that we don't want to do, but he wants to move us into maturity to where in every situation we can begin to ask the question, how is it that I embody the sacrificial love of my Savior? How is it that I do that in every aspect of my life and he fills me with his life? How do I move in that direction? Which is why he ultimately says in verse 15, he says, you have to be careful how you walk. You need a profound mindfulness in the way that you go about this thing called life and the way that you go about those things called relationships and church. We have to be mindful of how the Spirit is leading us because we actually are called to something that's very difficult. 
you look at how Paul bookends this whole, whole chapter, or this whole section of Scripture, in verses 1 and 2, he says to imitate God as Christ has sacrificed himself for us. But then at the end of that, in verse 21, he says, now submitting to one another in, out of reverence for Christ. That's a profound calling. It's calling you to completely reorient your life around this idea that my greatest good will be achieved when I seek your good before mine. Your marriage will be the best version of itself when you finally start to seek the good of your spouse. You flourish when they, when they flourish. It's this whole change of perspective that I actually gain when I, I actually gain when I give up. I actually gain when I lose. I receive whenever I give myself. It's a completely backwards way of looking at the world, and yet this is how Paul says we are to be human, to be imitators of God, and to be like him. But it's a, and we often want to kind of take love and not make it as big of a deal. But you have to think about this verse in the context of love, the fact that we're called to love in verses 1 and 2, and then we get to submitting to one another and seeing their needs is more important than mine out of reverence for Christ. What's he saying? I think he's saying that why would you, when Christ offered so much and placed so much value, that the value of their life is the cost of his own life and sacrifice for them, why would you then take them and devalue them and use them for your own purposes? Why do you not also try to move towards a place to where your heart for them can be the same as Christ's for them? And try to image and try to reflect Christ in the way that we approach one another. Which is why love is so central. Because we completely deface the sacrifice of Christ when we try to consume and devalue and hurt one another. Which means you have tremendous value. And Jesus loves you beyond your wildest expectations and imagination. But he loves the person sitting next to you as well. And I think sometimes it's really hard. When I think about um, loving like Jesus, I kind of don't want to do it. Sometimes it's just hard. It's really hard. Can we just admit that and say, yes, it's very hard to love like Jesus is. It's radical and it's difficult. And sometimes my reasoning is, well, when I do it, um, nobody appreciates me. When I do it, uh, I I go, people take advantage of me. Or people, um, people don't value it for what it's worth. I feel like it never really does anything. I'm taken advantage of and I'm beaten down. And the truth is, I think when we feel that way, we want to move away because we think that a life like that, like Jesus is so powerless. A life like that is just filled with weakness. There's no power there. And who wants to live like that? And I think Paul would say the complete opposite. I would, I would know he would say, he says it all the time, that that is a life of power. Why? You see, we use others to try to control what we want, and we try to overpower them by the fact that we use them. We try to manipulate them for what we want. But the thing is, is you can't ever really change anybody. Has any of it ever really worked for you? No, of course not. We all know that we have a, satisf- a desire in us for satisfaction that nobody can ever ever fill. And yet we still try to live a life of power to try to control others or control circumstances and we use and devour. That's actually a powerless life because you can't do anything anyways. 
You're always a slave to your circumstances, trying to get this and gain that. And Paul would say, what is a life of power? Why is it better to actually learn to love and sacrifice yourself as Christ did for us? Is because what is the one thing in the entire history of the world that defeated evil? What's the only act, what's the only thing that has ever truly, definitively, actually defeated and destroyed the power of evil and sin? It was the willing, loving, sacrificial offering of Jesus on your behalf, one who didn't love him, didn't care for him, didn't appreciate him, and didn't value him, and didn't know him for who he was. That's power. That's power because you're here. And you have been raised to life in Christ. And you are called not just to like bow to that power, you're called to live according to it. You're called to embrace and cloak yourself in that kind of power and to imitate the most powerful uh, person, but the most powerful act in human history. Which means that your marriage desperately needs that you to walk in that kind of power. Your relationships need you to walk in that type of sacrificial power. And your children need you to walk in that sacrificial power. What a profound invitation we have to be like Jesus. But the truth is we have to want it. We do have to respond. We do have to come to him and say, I need help. I need to do this. And so as we begin to think about some things in closing, What does it look like to move away? What does it look like to have the Lord shine his light on the darkness in our hearts and we move away from that and move towards Jesus? Just have a couple of things. Maybe it's time to actually now be honest about your past. You've hidden that away for a long, long time and it's time to be honest about it. It's time to come and just come clean and to finally stop carrying that burden. You need to come in. We need to talk. There's no judgment here. There never is. Come and let's talk and let's actually search for what it means to now live a life that pursues and tries to understand what is pleasing to God. Maybe now we need to, you need to set aside a night for your children to where you can just stop sometimes that crazy cycle of everybody's lives that we all so easily get trapped in. Set aside a night and say, son, sweetie, daughter, how is your heart? How are you doing? Do you feel like Jesus loves you very much this week? Do you feel loved this week? Are your relationships going okay? Do you feel like you're good enough? Do you feel like a failure? Let's talk about it. And maybe some of us, since we can so easily indirectly consume our children by the fact that we don't talk to them about sex because we simply don't want to have an embarrassing conversation. And maybe it's time now to actually protect your child and protect your children by the fact that now more and more and more we're recognizing how much they are picking up because the culture is constantly speaking to them about it. And it's time to start to have a better conversation about it. Maybe for some of you, um, I really challenge you to put your phone away. Just put it away. Don't consume the fake life of social, social media when that's exactly what we're doing, is just consuming picture after picture of somebody's life that maybe we wish we had, we wish we didn't have, all these different things that we respond, and there's real life flesh and blood in front of you. Put it away. And love that person that's there. 
because they're a gift to you. And maybe some need to befriend someone that has nothing to offer you socially. There are so many awesome people in this church that I'd love for you to know. But how often are we so unwilling to reach out and really get to know somebody? Become someone who's willing to listen and befriend and love, even when they don't have something to offer you. I think Paul's encouragement to us today is to wake up to the reality of who we're called to be and the purpose and the power that we're called to live with. But the truth is, it doesn't come by falling asleep it become, and falling into lethargic lifestyles where we never stop and think and we're not mindful. It comes through a deep mindfulness where we begin to ask how we can embody the sacrificial love of our Savior in all things. But you have to want it. You have to want it. And Paul says, he actually says that we have to, to wake up. And he says at the end of the passage that we have to sing over one another, to remind each other of the goodness of our Savior. And we become a people that sing over one another to remind them about Jesus and who we're called to be. And he actually does that. He actually sings a hymn over you. He sing, sings an invitation to respond. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you love us so spectacularly. We thank you that uh, you never said that you wouldn't love us because we wouldn't love you back. But you loved us to the end. The fact that we even could have the opportunity to be like our creator is simply lost on us. The fact that you would be so good, not just to save us, but to let us be like you, to let us reflect your character is a gift that we, we all certainly underestimate in so many ways. Would you actually now, by the power of your spirit, help us to see it for the gift that it is. Help us to see that version of ourselves that is filled with you, that can walk in freedom and walk in newness of life. It's free to love others and not controlled. Jesus, you have called us to be the ones who are consumed for the sake of one another and living sacrifices and a drink offering that is poured out. This is hard and we need your help. And we ask that your spirit would enable us to do it and that you would enable our minds and our hearts to want to do it. We ask all these things in your powerful name and for your glory alone. And everybody said, Amen.